Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. It is July 4th, 2020. If you live in the States, I would like to wish you a happy Independence Day. If you do not live in the States, then happy Saturday. I hope everybody's having a good weekend. I hope everybody is staying safe, and I hope everybody is healthy. So we are just going to jump right into this week's episode. And to recap, Chapter 57, Leo insists that Larry talk to Fran about Harold and Nadine after telling Larry that they are planning to go west to flag. Larry approaches Fran, who tells him what she knows about Harold, and the two decide to break into Harold and Nadine's house. Inside, they find the air hockey table with the electrical wire and an empty box of walkie-talkies, but they think nothing of it. They also find Harold's ledger and discover Harold's plot to kill Stu and maybe Fran. Larry takes the ledger to Stu. Brad Kitchener manages to get the power running in North Boulder, but only for a few minutes before it overheats the generators and they have to be turned off. He realizes that they need a crew to go around Boulder and turn off appliances that had been left on when people died or fled the town. If they can do that, there's a good chance the generators won't overheat the next time they're turned on. Stu says they can discuss the crew request at the next committee meeting, which will take place the next evening. Meanwhile, Nadine goes to Ralph and Nick's home and leaves the dynamite bomb in the closet. She has a change of heart, however, and goes back to get the shoebox when Flag suddenly enters her, leading her to an abandoned drive-in. It's there he speaks to her through the speakers, telling her that they know everything except for the bomb. He gives her instructions to go to Sunrise Amphitheater with Harold, and after they detonate the bomb, they can go west to him. Nadine flees and gets Harold, telling him that they have his ledger, Fran and someone else, probably Bateman or Larry, and the two of them must go. Harold is taken aback by Nadine's appearance. Her hair is now purely white. He wonders that maybe he doesn't want to go anymore, but Nadine tells him it's too late. So we are starting Chapter 58 of On the Border. At Stu and Fran's house, this is the same day, mind you, that they found Harold's ledger, Fran and Larry are sitting together at the kitchen table. Lucy and Leo are downstairs where they can hear Leo playing the guitar and singing. But then Larry is startled when he can hear Leo start to sing, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? He spills his coffee. Fran can remember that song. It got big right before the flu but she can't quite remember the singer's name. It seems very familiar to her, you know, when something is on the tip of your tongue and you just can't think of it. Larry says he can't remember either. Pop music comes and goes so fast. I mean, given the circumstances, I'm sure people have had other things on their mind. 
But it still amuses me that no one has realized that Larry is Larry Underwood, musician. It's also very telling that Larry seems almost embarrassed by this. He And he doesn't admit that that song was his. Um, I also kind of see that as a bit more of Larry's character development, because I'm pretty sure uh, pre-Plague, he would have been all over uh, announcing that, you know, that song is his. So while they're waiting in the kitchen, Stu is in his chair reading Harold's ledger, and he's been reading it for a while now. When he finishes with it, he compares Harold to a rabbit from Watership Down, the last book he'd ever sat down to read. The rabbit, Silverweed, made up poems about the shining wire that the farmer would catch the rabbits in, the snare that would strangle the rabbits before he made them into stew. And that's the rabbit that Harold reminds him of. Fran says that Harold is ill, and Stu agrees, but Harold is also dangerous. Stu realizes that Harold and Nadine are planning to do something before they go west, something that will have Flag welcome them with open arms. He's just not sure what it could be. Maybe sabotaging the power plant, perhaps murdering Stu and Fran. And they come to the conclusion that the best-case scenario would be to exile them. Fran wonders if Flag would welcome them that way, but Stu rightly points out that that isn't their problem. But they decide to deal with this with the rest of the committee at the meeting the next evening. In the meantime, Stu calls Brett Kitchener through the CB radio and asks him to have people watch over the power plant for the evening. He informs Brad that someone might be attempting some mischief up there, but hopefully it will be dealt with soon. And Brad agrees. And with that taken care of, Fran asks them to promise that this will be dealt with after the committee meeting because she needs it to be finished once and for all. Up at the Sunrise Amphitheater, Nadine and Harold are sharing a two-person tent that they had picked up on their way out of town. Harold thinks that they'll be back riding on chariots. But deep in his heart, he doubts it. The darkness was upon him in more ways than one. The vile bastards had stolen everything from him. Franny, his self-respect, then his ledger, and now his hope. He felt like he was going down. Nadine is asleep beside him, making sounds that are clearly not sounds that a person has if they're having happy dreams. And he thinks to himself, but I can keep sane. I can do that. If I can go down to whatever's waiting for me with my mind intact, that will be something. Yes, something. Harold whispers in the dark, all right, we're going through with it. Fourteen hours later, the committee is gathered in Ralph and Nick's home. Stu was sitting in the easy chair. Glenn sat with Larry on the lip of the freestanding fireplace with their backs to the fire that Ralph had created. Nick, Sue Stern, and Ralph sat on the couch. Brad Kitchener was there, standing in the doorway, talking to Al Bundell. George Richardson and Chad Norris were sitting by the large window wall, watching the sunset. Franny sat with her back, pressed up against the closet door where Nadine had planted the bomb. Her pack that contained Harold's ledger was between her legs. Stu gets the meeting called to order, and Fran marvels at how different he is now. He's really getting good at it, Franny thought. 
She tried to judge just how much Stu had changed since the day she and Harold had met him and couldn't do it. You get too subjective about the behavior of the people you're close to, she decided. But she knew that when she had first met him, Stu would have been stricken at the thought of having to chair a meeting of almost a dozen people. And he probably would have jumped straight up to heaven at the thought of chairing a mass free zone meeting of over a thousand people. She was now watching a Stu that never would have been without the plague. Stu decides to have the guests speak first, and then they'll have their closed meeting after. There are no objections to that, so Brad Kitchener goes first, explaining about the power station and the need to shut off the electricity in the uninhabited homes around Boulder. As Fran listens, she suddenly feels like things are going to be all right. They now know that Harold and Nadine had taken off without any prompting. While she still feels sorry for Harold and she worries what might happen to him now, Fran is thankful that his house is empty and he left them in peace. However, Harold and Nadine are still waiting at the amphitheater. It's night now, and Nadine is growing impatient. She asks Harold when this is going to happen, and he says soon. His grin had become a mellow smile. It was an expression she could not place right away, because she had never seen it on Harold's face before. It took her a few minutes to place it. Harold looked happy. The committee votes 7 to 0 to give Brad 20 men and women for his turning off crew. Ralph agrees to fill up two of the fire department's tanker trucks from the reservoir to have at the power station when Brad gets it turned on again. Chad Norris speaks about the burial committee next. They've buried 25,000 corpses already, better than 8,000 a week, and he believed that they were finally over the bulge. He's not too worried anymore about disease spreading from the dead. Fran listens, but she looks out the window as she does so. The gold that has surrounded the peaks was already beginning to fade to a less spectacular lemon color. She felt a sudden wave of homesickness that was totally unexpected and almost sickening in its force. It was five minutes to eight. Next to speak is Al Bundell. Al begins to discuss the law committee. He's the lawyer that they voted in on the representative government committee after they discovered that the judge was gone. And Al has decided that sitting members would be chosen by a lottery. The tribunal would consist of three adults, 18 and over, who would serve for six months. And as he talks, Fran suddenly feels frightened, claustrophobic and frightened. She knew that what you were supposed to do with baseless feelings was to ignore them, at least in the old world. But what about Tom Cullen's trance? What about Leo Rockway? Get out of here, the voice inside suddenly cried. Get them all out. But it seems crazy to her, so she ignores it, at least for a moment. And then suddenly Fran gets to her feet and says someone is coming. They can hear the motorcycle engines outside. Horns are beeping. And suddenly, Fran panics. She yells at everyone to listen to her. They have to get out of the house right now. At 8.25, Harold is ready to press the button, but Nadine points out the chain of lights on Baseline Road. They can faintly hear the motorcycle engines. 
Harold feels disquiet, but he ignores it, and he presses the send button. And Fran, well, she never knew if it was the motorcycles or her own words that got them moving, but they didn't move fast enough. That would always be on her heart. They didn't move fast enough. Stu is the first out the door, followed by Larry. They can see Dick Volman, Teddy Wiesak, and others that he recognizes. When he yells for Dick, Volman tells him that Mother Abigail is back. Glenn, Ralph, and Chad Norris come outside as well. Dick says that Mother Abigail is in terrible shape and needs a doctor. The doctor, George Richardson, pushes his way out and gets on Volman's motorcycle to be taken to Mother Abigail. Stu's eyes met Larry's. Larry looked as bewildered as Stu felt, but there was a gathering cloud in Stu's head, and suddenly a terrible feeling of impending doom engulfed him. Fran is still inside the house, and she grabs Nick, screaming at him to come with her. He shakes her off because he knows. He knows something is in the closet. He waves at Fran to go, and she does. Nick pulls open the door to the closet, praying that he wasn't too late. Outside, Fran grabs Stu. She tells him Nick is still inside. Stu asks what she's talking about, and Fran screams, Death. I'm talking about death, and Nick is still in there. She knows something is going to happen. Something. As Nick finds the box, Harold's voice speaks from inside. He says, This is Harold Emery Louder speaking. I do this of my own free will. Fran tells Stu that they have to get Nick, and that is when the house blows up behind them. At the amphitheater, Harold and Nadine watch the fire bloom at the base of Flagstaff Mountain. Nadine wonders if they ought to make sure it got them, but Harold asks if she thinks anything could have survived that blast. Nadine begins to retch, and Harold watches her with mild contempt. And now they go west, Nadine says they ought to wait until tomorrow, but Harold says no. Twenty or thirty of them will be fanning out to look for them. He also tells her that they don't touch each other. That part is over. Harold says it got Flag what he wanted. We wasted their free zone committee. They're washed up. They may get the power on, but as a functioning group, they're washed up. He'll give me a woman who makes you look like a potato sack, Nadine. And you, you get him. Happy days, right? Only if I were wearing your hush puppies, I would be shaking in them plenty. Nadine begins to cry, and Harold feels pity for her, although he pushes that back quickly. The irrevocable fact of murder was in her heart forever. That fact shone sickly in her eyes. But so what? It was in his as well. In it and on it, weighing it down like stones. He tells her to get used to it. It's over for them down there, and it's over for us, and it's over for everybody that died in the plague. God went off on a celestial fishing trip, and he's going to be gone a long time. It's totally dark. The dark man's in the driver's seat now. Him. So get used to it. Down in Boulder, Fran is thrown by the blast. She lands on her shoulder in the ravine that ran at the foot of Ralph's backyard. A chair lands in front of her, and something lands on the chair and rolls off, and she realizes it's an arm. A steady, grinding roar of sound engulfed her, and stuff began to rain down everywhere. Rocks, hunks of wood, bricks, 
a glass block spider webbed with cracks. Hadn't the bookshelf in Ralph's living room been made of those blocks? A motorcycle helmet with a horrible lethal hole punched through the back of it. She could see everything clearly, much too clearly. It had been dark out only a few seconds ago. Oh, Stu, my God, where are you? What's happening, Nick? Larry? People were screaming. That grinding roar went on and on. It was now brighter than noontime. Every pebble cast a shadow. Stuff still raining down all around her. A board with a six-inch spike protruding from it came down in front of her nose. On the heels of that, Fran realizes Harold did this. Something strikes her on the back of the head, her neck, and back. Her last thought is about her baby. Then darkness sucked her down to a nowhere place where not even the dark man could follow. And that was a very tense chapter. And, you know, just like that, Harold and Nadine's plan comes to fruition. And Stu, Larry, and Fran are just too late. They had Harold's ledger. And rather than try and confront him at that moment, they hold on to it to discuss at the committee meeting the next night. And I don't know when they went to his house, but they do find out at some point that Harold and Nadine had gone. Maybe there had really been no way for them to stop what was about to happen. And who knows? Maybe they had planned on putting Harold and Nadine in jail until they could discuss exile with the committee. But once they found Harold's house empty, it seems like they figured that the problem was dealt with. And Fran even thinks in her head, like, she thanks Harold for leaving them in peace. But they read the ledger. Did they not think that maybe Harold was too angry and mentally unstable to just leave? Did it not occur to them that maybe Harold discovered that his ledger was missing? That maybe he was lying in wait? If Ralph had been told about this, maybe he could have told them that Harold had asked him when the next committee meeting was. Larry and Fran knew about the electrical wire in the walkie-talkie box. Maybe there were just too many variables needing to be put together for them to realize that Harold was going to attack the Free Zone Committee. But given his resentment and bitterness towards being left out, I mean, just talk about it with everybody as soon as possible. Don't put it off to do the official thing by sitting around in a committee meeting. So my frustration with the committee continues to grow, and I suddenly understand where King's writing block came from in this book. According to King, he had discovered that the heroes in this book were becoming complacent, and they were repeating all of the same mistakes of their old society. So to resolve the issue, King created Nadine and Harold's plot to set off a bomb during a Free Zone committee meeting. And as much as I wish this hadn't happened, I get it. Because honestly, I mean, how many chapters have we had now of ad hoc committee meetings, public meetings, free zone committees, talking about this issue, that issue, committees, votes, meetings? Complacency is the right word. Because what about flag? What about the changes they should be making? Glenn knew and predicted that this could happen. The judge said maybe it was time to talk about God's place in this new world instead of reinventing the toilet. There is a chance to create a new society for the better. And the survivors of the free zone have been rebuilding society as they already knew it. Society which had led them to this post-plague world in the first place. 
So Harold and Nadine, they throw a wrench in those plans, or rather a bomb, because King wanted to shake things up. And he certainly has. It's time to get rid of this complacency within the free zone. It's also interesting to me how the dynamic between Harold and Nadine has changed. When they first met, Nadine was the seducer, the one in charge. She could manipulate Harold with sex and the promise of power over in the West. And then over time, she grew meeker while Harold became the dominant one. He grew cold and short with Nadine, maybe because he knew what she was doing and he knew that she was never really his and never could be. They're just pawns to each other and pawns to flag. But like Nadine, I don't think Harold really understood that he had a choice to be something else. Nadine had moments of doubt like Harold, but Harold is the one who pushed through with it. He knows the end game here and he tells Nadine to suck it up, basically. They've just, you know, potentially killed a lot of people, people who would have accepted them. Harold knew he could have been someone in Boulder, even without Fran and the Free Zone Committee, but he could not look past his bitterness at being rejected, not only by Fran, but the Free Zone Committee, to accept it. And he probably would have been on the ad hoc committee, if not for Nick taking his name off. Harold is pretty harsh with Nadine in this chapter, especially after they set off the bomb, because, I mean, who knows, maybe he blames her for leading him down this path. He had already been teetering on the edge when she showed up at his house, and now he was fully in the dark when he could have turned back. In the end, it doesn't really matter. What's done is done, and now they're finally heading west to flag. I really did enjoy the way King cut this chapter into tiny bits during the committee meeting. Um, giving us the meeting interspersed with Harold and Nadine. It added quite a bit of tension, and I think that this particular chapter would be really easy to film for television. So I'm eager to see how they do this in the 2020 uh, miniseries. Um, but then we see during the committee meeting that Fran gets, um, I don't know if I can say a premonition, but she knows something isn't right. She knows it's important to get out of the house. And then suddenly everyone is distracted because Mother Abigail is back. So on one hand, the timing couldn't be better. <laughs> Plenty of people in the house had left to see what the commotion was about outside. If not for Mother Abigail's return, the bomb would have exploded with everyone still inside. Unless they had all listened to Fran right away and evacuated, but they all moved kind of slowly. Like Fran, Nick knew as well. He had sudden clarity that he knew something was in the house, and then he knew exactly where to look. So who was speaking through him? Was it Mother Abigail? Was it God? How fitting that it was Nick who found the bomb instead of, say, you know, Stu or Larry or Fran. With Harold's voice speaking through the shoebox, he says, I do this of my own free will. Harold is thinking that he has the last word before killing the committee. But his words fell on deaf ears, literally. No one heard his statement. And I suppose it doesn't really matter because it's pretty obvious at this point that Nick has died. And this is by far one of the more upsetting chapters for me. Um, Nick has always been one of my favorite characters and I would have loved to see more of him in the On the Border book outside of the committee meetings. I feel like his time was really cut short but 
I also believe that he saved Fran's life by urging her to get out of the house, assuming Fran survives as well. And Nick was just one of those really pure characters in the novel, one of those really good people. He always did the right thing, even when it was difficult. He took care of the prisoners who beat him up after Baker's death. He buried Janie Baker. He took Tom Cullen with him, despite Tom's disability. And he pushed Julie Lowry away when she taunted and mocked Tom. Mother Abigail told him that God has his finger on Nick's heart, whether Nick believed in God or not. And Nick decided for himself to take Harold off the list of the ad hoc committee members because instinctively he knew Harold was not the right person for the position. He made the tough decision to send Tom Cullen West, aware that he would be their best bet as a spy, and yet he still felt the weight of that decision. He was able to lead and be reasonable, and I think people respected him for that despite his young age. I really hate that King felt the need to kill him off, but I also understand what his death could lead to in the book. As for the others, we don't know who else survived and who didn't. Uh, Fran is thrown and knocked unconscious. What about Stu or Glenn or Larry or Ralph? Given how long we've been in Boulder, this seems to be the turn of the tide for our heroes. We don't know who survived yet. Um, and the survivors, how will they respond to what Harold and Nadine have done? Will Mother Abigail live? And why did she return now? What has she learned out in the wilderness? Well, we are going to find out next week because Mother Abigail has a request to make, and it is not an easy one. And that's this chapter. That's chapter 58, you guys. Um, it was a shorter chapter again, but this is really, I think, <laughs> how many pages are we? We're over a thousand pages. And this is where I think things are changing. This is um, the catalyst for the final confrontation with Randall Flagg. And we have, um, we have two more chapters of On the Border before we enter the final book of The Stand titled The Stand. Um, so we're getting really close to the end of this book, you guys. Um, what did you think of Chapter 58? Uh, do you think King made the right decision with Harold and Nadine's detonating the bomb? What do you think about losing Nick? It's a really sad chapter. I'm really upset about this. <laughs> I know I'm laughing, but uh, this chapter gets me every single time. So let's take a moment of silence for our boy Nick. And that is it for this episode of The Circle Opens. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be fabulous if you left me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, the reviews and ratings certainly help get the podcast noticed. I want to say thank you to everyone who's already done so. You guys are amazing and awesome. Thank you so much. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can reach me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or on social media at The Circle Opens. Or you can check out the blog, thecircleopens.com, which has everything you need to know about the podcast. And I'm also building a sort of wiki for the stand itself. So check it out. And that's it for today, you guys. Have a very safe and happy 4th of July weekend. Um, please stay healthy. And that's it. M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>